We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not a drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Oh, and there was a president who knew what being president was all about. He was a Democrat who got a lot of things done, who understood the common good. Well, what an impact Fox News has had over the recent years. But wait, it may be about to get worse. Lots worse. Really, with something called Sinclair News. Every American knows that the mainstream media landscape took a radical shift to the right with the addition of Fox News, which was founded by media mogul Robert Murdoch in 1996, who appointed Roger Ailes as CEO of the news operation. In January 2002, the ratings of the channel surpassed top-rated CNN to become the number one news cable channel. There's money to be made. And we see the results in the far-right turn of today's politics and government. But lately, their influence, Fox News influence, seems to be decreasing. There have been embarrassments for the network, sex scandals involving Roger Ailes and Bill O'Reilly, among others, and their credibility and influence in general has been weakened. Many Americans are familiar with the dinosaur logo of Sinclair Oil. I sure am. But I haven't heard much of Sinclair Broadcasting Group. It's all well beneath the mainstream media's radar. But if we think the output of Fox News was right-wing, well, we ain't seen nothing yet. We're talking real alt-right stuff here. With us today to shed light into this currently kind of hidden corner is John Kaczynski, professional media analyst for some 40 years. He must have started when he was about two or three years old. John, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Bert. I know a lot of us have not heard of uh, Sinclair, but uh, I'll give you what probably is their end game in just a couple of moments, but without putting uh, your audience to sleep. <laughs> a little bit of how we got here. Uh, we got here because uh, and, uh, John McCain, in that very impassioned speech on the Senate floor just the other day, blaming talk radio for some of the ills that we're experiencing today. Well, where did that come from? In 1949, the Federal Communications Commission, which licenses all radio and TV stations, came up with the Fairness Doctrine. That was just as NBC, CBS, and ABC were getting into television, the birth of television, and they thought, okay, they've got this big national platform. We don't want any political agendas, so... We're going to require all radio and television stations to cover issues that are important to the audience, but make sure that both 
sides of the issue get prominent airtime. Thus, the fairness doctrine that went away in 1987 in a Reagan White mm-hmm. House when one of Reagan's aides and lawyers was appointed the commissioner of the FCC, and away went the fairness doctrine. And if you'll remember, in 1987 and 1988, a guy by the name of Rush Limbaugh, that type of conservative radio, only heard on a couple of stations in cities around the country, became popular. And suddenly we had a national platform because the fairness doctrine went away. So that's part one to this story that brings us to today. Part two is this arcane law that was on the books, again, with the Federal Communications Commission that licenses all radio and television stations. It's called the UHF discount, and here's Uh what it meant Mm -hmm. back in the 1980s. We all remember watching Al Caprellian through the snow on (laughs) Channel 50, and, you know, we do anything possible to get as clear a picture as possible as we were getting on Channel 9, if we didn't have cable, well, a lot of UHF broadcasters saying, hey, we're trying to just make a go of it against those stations that have the good signals. So as you have set caps about how many stations we can own, give us a little discount. We're like a half a station, not a whole station. And, uh, And the FCC to the owner said, yeah, okay. And so there, there was the, the UHF discount, so it kind of counted as a half station. And then that went away. So entered today. So now everybody's on an even playing field. But Sinclair has gone back to the FCC and trying to buy up some big stations in New York and Los Angeles and down in Boston. Uh-huh. And they said, no, 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 wait a minute. If we buy all of these stations, then we're going to be over the limits that you have set for us own stations we but some of those are on uhf uh we want that discount put back that you had back in the 1980s and lobbying money and the republican fcc guess what's back the uhf discount which will allow sinclair to become even bigger and own tribune broadcasting wpix in new york a lot of the super stations that are on your cable system wgn in chicago mm-hmm the WGN America Cable Channel, KTLA in Los Angeles, and some 41 stations across the country. Now, what's disingenuous about that, and the FCC knows this, but it's a Republican FCC, and this is how it works in politics. In the digital age that we're in now, high-definition television, there is no signal disparity. If you were watching channel 38 in boston you're going to get that as clear as anything else if you still have an antenna on your roof so a lot of lobbying money went into this and the prize in the tribune deal is that cable channel which and i'll predict this i remember being on your radio program what was it over a couple of years ago and i yeah. you know trump's going to be president you just said get out of here yeah <laughs> Uh, I I don't know if it's going to rain tomorrow or not, but uh, what's going to happen is the WGN America channel that's on everybody's cable and satellite systems right now, which runs a lot of old, you know, situation comedy reruns and things like that, and is modestly successful from a business standpoint. That will become a news channel, quote-unquote, that, and they've talked about this, that is to the right 
of Fox News Channel. The people, the Smith family that owns Sinclair, has publicly stated that they believe Fox News Channel and its conservative slant yes. has been too liberal, too liberal. And uh, with alt-right, which we've certainly heard in uh, the last six months, yeah. as, as a matter of fact, the last year, through the through the campaigning and now the presidency of Donald Trump, uh, that's what WGN America will turn into. It will turn into an alt-right news channel speaking to a base, millions of people, tens of millions of people who voted for Donald Trump. And they believe that's going to be a successful business model, Bert, moving forward. It probably will be. It probably will be. And you understand this stuff, being a professional media analyst for all these years, and uh, you were right on Trump. Yikes! Uh, and it's going to be a little bit different as I try to understand this. It is complex, and it's always profitable for those who know how to work the system and all these little complexities, like the UHF thing. I mean, who would there? There isn't any UHF anymore, but there's still that discount thing, and they've been working that. So there's the big four TV networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, and Fox. But, but Sinclair is going to be a little bit different different from that qualitatively, not just in terms of their right, you know, right wing slant, but they're not going to be actually a big network, are they? I mean, isn't it a little bit different that they're just going after local stations somehow? And clue us in as to how, how all that works and, you know, how... Pop- That's right. There's a very important distinction to make uh, that you bring up, Bert. Sinclair will not be a network the way we watch The Bachelor on ABC or Sunday Night Football on NBC. Uh, it will be a string of uh, television stations, some 100-plus television stations all across the United States. And uh, how that impacts the political landscape is the fact that uh, Sinclair's conservative agenda is well-known in the broadcasting community. And they have, they, Sinclair, have employed at the corporate level uh, people who are uh, sympathetic to uh, the Trump administration and some of the trials and tribulations you see the Trump administration going through, and uh, the way uh, Mr. Trump has spokespeople whom you see on the Sunday morning talk show mm-hmm. defending his point of view and the Republican point of view. Sinclair employs uh, three people. One, Boris Epstein, who used to work as the spokesperson for the president, um, and uh, they do these daily commentaries that are recorded and are must-runs on every Sinclair television station. So a local news operation in Columbus, Ohio, or Seattle, Washington, wherever Sinclair has a television station, must run these commentaries, which are sympathetic to the Trump administration. And with no more fairness doctrine, you don't have to balance that. Now, fairness doctrine aside, the precarious part of that is a television station's profit center is local news. That's about it. You watch WMUR, you watch them for their news. You can get ABC programming in any number of places, but you're watching them because they have the credible faces right. that you uh, trust. Local people. Local news. Right. By putting an alt-right bevy of people within that mixture of the people you know and trust who live in your community and report on the events in your community... That's kind of dangerous, I think, as a media analyst, uh, because you are now toying with the profit center for your television station, and that's the local news. You could diminish 
the impact of the credibility that your local news team has in their community. Now, I will say, as far as Sinclair is concerned, they spend money on local news. They're good operators when it comes to local news. They have invested in equipment and people Mm -hmm. to cover their communities, and many of their newscasts, are either number one or number two in their market. They do a good job covering the news day in and day out. Has there been pressure from Sinclair Corporate to cover local issues through a more conservative lens? Yes. And that has happened in, in markets. It's not something that happens every day, but that's something that happens. And that's how your local news could get, if you've got a Sinclair station, uh, in, in your marketplace, we don't have any. Uh, we have one in New England. It's, it's WGME. It's the CBS affiliate over in Portland, Maine. And if you're able to get that on cable, and I know in your coverage area, many people do watch Channel 13, you will see these yeah. commentators I'm talking about. But you've probably not seen a direct influence on skewing content to the right, or it's been kind of subtle. So I think, Bert, over a period of time, this could be death by a thousand paper cuts uh-huh. when you get these very prominent television stations all across the country and markets from New York to Portland, Maine, to even smaller communities in Montana and in the Carolinas as they swallow sure. up TV stations, to have this more conservative agenda show up coming from the trusted local voices exactly. that you have. And, uh, and it's something that really kind of into the groundwater mm. before you even know it's there. Mm, mm, mm. Very clever. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is uh, media analyst John Kaczynski, and we're talking about Sinclair seeping up like the oil from the old dinosaurs, the Sinclair symbol. You know, and, and I was, somebody mentioned a long time ago about how uh, Trump got his, his, his strength and his popularity. And, you know, of course, TV and narrow casting is about making money. Trump's rise to power, I believe, came partially as a result of the old writer's strike, which was sometime in the 1980s, I think, in which network executives figured out that without having to pay writers, their business became a lot more profitable. So so so-called reality TV and Donald Trump's old show became major generators of revenue. So I read that uh, some people at Sinclair, their focus is on the unscripted programming, so you don't have to pay writers. you got talk shows, game shows, court shows that are the bread and butter of its TV stations. And uh, Chris Ripley uh, of uh, a UBS investment bank alumni who joined Sinclair as chief financial officer in 2014 said, we don't have a desire to get into the scripted genre, we feel like that's very competitive and very well supplied. So what's their plan and programming? And, you know, who who is in their market? Just these little stations across the country, along with some of the bigger ones? Well, Sinclair doesn't produce any right. programming across their platform uh, on a regular basis. They will do it on a spot basis. In fact, last night, and it originated at their television station in Washington, D.C., they did a town hall. They did a town hall meeting with uh, a mixture of uh, Republican and uh, Democratic members of Congress, a six-month report card on Donald Trump. 
Mark Hyman, who is a corporate officer of Sinclair and is one of those people that you see in the daily commentaries that are must-run on the Sinclair television stations, were the panel. I watched it, and it was good television. Hmm. It, was, it was as good a program as you would see any place. In fact, I really thought it was better and much more content-rich from a point of view of Democrats and Republicans than you see on the Sunday morning talk shows or any cable network. I take my hat off to mm-hmm. a very, a very well-produced and balanced program. Good for Sinclair for doing that. I think a lot of people were not expecting that. Uh-huh. When you watched that program, you saw that they had almost unfettered access to senior members of the Trump administration. Ah. That's pretty tough to get, even if you've got a large platform like Sinclair. But we have to go back to just before the election, a few months before the election, when Sinclair did do a deal, and there's nothing wrong with this, Mm -hmm. they did do a deal with the Trump administration, promising the Trump administration that they would get fairer treatment than was perceived by the Trump campaign and many at the time on the Sinclair television stations. So the Sinclair Mm. television stations in a lot of battleground states where they've got a big footprint in places like Ohio, a lot of the Sinclair television stations had a great deal of access to then-candidate Trump, meaning their local anchors got to sit down and ask questions of candidate Uh Trump. And generally speaking, when local anchors sit down to talk to candidates running for national office or once president is elected, they're not necessarily softball questions, but they really won't challenge as much. That's just how the game sure. is played, no matter who's in the White House, if it's a Democrat or a Republican. But they did cut this deal, which raised the eyebrows of a lot of journalists, saying, hey, wait a minute, because this is still the same company that uh, preempted a lot of ABC programming. A number of Sinclair stations uh-huh. are ABC affiliates. Uh, during the campaign in 2008 and 2012, but especially in 2008, they preempted a lot of ABC programming, including Nightline, which at that time was Mm. running the list of those who lost their lives serving the United States in Iraq. They thought that that was not, again, to use the term here, fair and balanced, Mm. we're all familiar with, so they simply blacked it out. They thought it wasn't fair supporting uh, then President Bush's uh, support of the war in Iraq. Uh, they also uh, preempted network programming. Networks don't like this. Uh, the night before mm-hmm. election night, in a number of their markets in uh, key key battle states, doing um, negative programs, half-hour specials, touting the Republican candidate at the time. It was John McCain uh-huh. against Barack Obama, and then again uh, supporting uh, Mitt Romney over Barack Obama in 2012. 2012 yeah. That's their prerogative. They're not breaking any rules. That's their business plan. And, uh, you know, those are the things that do stick out over a period of time Mm. that has brought us to today, a Republican FCC. Yes. And uh, and courts that favor companies like Sinclair that roll back some of the rules uh, that will allow them perhaps to buy Tribune Broadcasting. My goodness. And uh, that deal is getting some scrutiny by the courts, and also some lawsuits that have been filed by both Democrats and Republicans saying this really isn't good for the broadcasting industry or the populace of the United States. So 
Whether or not this deal goes through remains to be seen because there are a lot of legal obstacles to, uh, to overcome. But it's interesting that uh, some of the pushback on the Sinclair expansion into big markets like New York and Los Angeles and Chicago and that prized cable channel is coming from both the left and the right. Very interesting. It's it's, And we're talking about democracy here. That's what the show is called, Keeping Democracy Alive. And I wanted to ask about some of the players at Sinclair. For example, David Smith. What's his relationship with the Trump administration? Were people at Sinclair involved with the Trump campaign? It sounds like they were. Not necessarily. Um, you know, I'm sure when they did that deal with the Trump campaign, they had uh, they certainly had greater access to the candidate because we saw him in one-on-one interviews with a number of anchor people at Sinclair stations in key battle states. And when we look at the town hall meeting last night, when you see uh, the cabinet members, Dr. Tom Price was one of them, and there were others. Uh, those are very difficult gets for local television stations, and uh, they had unfettered access to that. Which, and this is just uh, you know pure conjecture on my part is probably because of that relationship, that arrangement that Sinclair has uh, with, the, with the administration. And this, this is going to take a little bit of explaining, uh, something very technical. Sinclair holds in its pocket something called ATSC 3.0, which I understand to be a new technical standard for broadcast TV. Can you... Uh, explain what this is and in what way this new tool may make them more competitive on a regional basis with the current you know, network behemoths. Uh, the, the technology now where a lot, of, a lot of what you see when you watch the news on Channel 9, if you watch it from Boston, if you watch it from Portland, uh, the ability to produce news for less money is a function of the advancements of the technology. So you can use the public Internet to transmit pictures. And so that makes, that makes delivering the news in your local community or on a nationwide or worldwide basis more efficient and, and, and less expensive to do because you don't have to get big trucks and satellites and things like uh-huh. that, even though the Sinclair people do invest in all of that technology. Uh, the problem with that for not only for all of us watching local news, uh, regardless of who owns the television station, is that we we kind of get an un an unfettered stream of uh, of information uh, coming with very little analysis or reporting, and it's like uh, it's almost like a news kit. It's like okay, here's all the video, here's what's happening. You're watching it unfold before our eyes. We kind of love that edge of the seat television, but then we have to put it together. And we don't want to work, uh, you know, and that's an indictment. And listen, I put myself in that same category. We have, uh, you know, we have been conditioned as a society to give it to me, give it to me now, and give it to me short. Yes. Uh, if you can give it to me in bullet points, uh, you know, the way uh, apparently Mr. Trump gets uh, daily intelligence briefings, they say I have to, they have to put it in bullet points because it doesn't have a great intention span. <laughs> Uh, you know, that's not condemning him. That's condemning all of us. We don't have a big attention span. That's and uh, the man who realized that in 1967 was Roger Ailes. Uh, the guy was a visionary. I was blessed to spend some time with him as a junior broadcaster. And uh, he's an affable guy and a wonderful guy and somebody at that point in time who was willingly able to share his knowledge 
Uh, and, and those were fun times with, with Roger Ailes. But he saw back in the late 1960s when he first met Richard Nixon and became his communications right. advisor on the 1968 campaign, he saw the short attention span starting to invade our society. And he thought, ah, short attention span plus no one really wanting to do the due diligence right. on an issue. Right. So I could feed them the facts that I want from a partisan perspective, and they're not going to do the work on it. So then that, repeated over and over again, becomes the quote-unquote truth. Yes. So there is the very, that's the embryo of where we are today in this monster that's been created where everything is left, right, black, white, right, wrong, and there's really no analysis, no perspective, and from us as consumers, not a lot of work that we want to do to decipher what's right, what's wrong for ourselves, our families, our communities, and our nation. Well, those of us who are old enough to remember the uh, early 70s and Watergate, we appreciated uh, something uh, that I suppose could be in a museum now, investigative journalist, uh, you know, and investigative journalism. And th- with the current FCC and the short attention span, the understanding of that, there doesn't seem to be, you know, much of a public demand for investigative journalism. It- is TV station ownership now uh, it- it too tightly concentrated in the hands of too few? And how does that affect investigative journalism is it just i mean it it costs money to do the investigative journalism so how does that affect democracy itself then do you think john uh you're right uh investigative journalism is something that uh, you see only in a few local markets uh, because it does take time and it does take money and uh with these news factories local television stations producing an awful lot of local news look at the volume of hours that a WMUR produces or a television station in Boston, uh, you know, you just need to keep cranking it out. And so you don't have time to, or the resources or the money to do quality investigative reporting that affects the lives of the people who live in your community. What television stations should be doing as responsible licensees, holding a license from the federal government for the public interest. Yes, and necessity, public airways, convenience and necessity, uh, as uh, the term used to go when they would hand out a license to a broadcaster. So, yeah, you don't see that very often. And uh, if you do see it in in uh, in markets, it's usually in bigger markets, bigger cities. Right. Usually done pretty well. Yeah. And uh, and it's and it can be very, very effective for a, a television station. Uh, what I have not seen yet on the local level, and, and really don't expect to see, is the, the, the term fake news, which has not only become a punchline, but also a fact, and that's a small f on the word fact. Uh, it's, it's, it's a brilliant positioning uh, place to be from yeah. the Trump administration, where if you don't agree with something, it's just fake, it fake right. even though it's based in fact, <laughs> and this goes right back full circle to the to the point that uh, we made about Roger Ailes, where we don't want to go and research the facts on our own. We just want somebody to give it to me. And if you give it to me and it's something that I like because I have a similar mindset, then that's my set of facts. 
Yeah, that's that real. really is the dangerous place that we are where we are now as as a democracy and the responsibility that uh, you know all television and radio operators should have are supposed to have to make sure that good factual reporting about what affects people in their communities is all about. And Thomas Jefferson said something about the you know extreme importance of journalism of, of reporting the news to keep a democracy alive and and now just you know these news factories and just handing out stuff that people like to hear just uh, candy like what can people do here i mean this you know the the, the power of sinclair uh, to to get exactly what they want from the fcc it's not a done deal yet what can people do and it is sort of complex what would you suggest john kaczynski here's what you can do as a viewer and and i always say this and it, it hasn't changed as long as there's been radio or television, where you've got the ultimate power. You really do have the ultimate power, and it's called the on and off switch, <laughs> because uh, television stations live and die by ratings. And if you're not watching, then they're not getting the advertising revenue they need to stay on the air. So you can vote with the on and off switch. Mm. You can vote by letting, in a very polite way, know the people who run broadcast facilities in individual markets, and here it would be Channel 9, or when Bill Binney had a local news yeah. operation that's now gone, or the Portland stations or the Boston stations, you can let them know by email or by letter that you don't like something that you saw on their local news, right. explain why, explain right. your viewpoint, do so courteously, and send it yes. to them, and then here's what you add to that email or to that letter put four public files four public files because uh-huh. one rule that has not gone away from radio and television stations is that they have to keep a file that by law they can show to anybody who walks into a radio or television station and that's their report card to the federal government to say we are worthy to hold this license which are worth hundreds oh. of millions of dollars they are big profit centers. So if you put four public file by law, they have to put that in the public file. That's their permanent record, if you will, in the principal's office. And the principal's office happens to be the Federal <laughs> Communications Commission, which hands out licenses and can take them away as well. And they have, both Republican and Democratic Federal Communications Commissions have taken away licenses from irresponsible broadcasters. Right. So that really is the power you have on two levels the on and off switch, and if you've turned it off, let them know why. And also, if there's something that really upsets you and uh, is something that's contrary to what you believe affects your community or democracy at large, let them know. Again, politely, courteously, Courteously, respectfully, yes. email or an actual snail mail, a letter, and put the words for public file on that letter, and it gets addressed to the general manager. Very helpful information, and if you live in Arizona and are listening to this, you can do it in your area as well. John Kaczynski, thank you so much for shedding light on to this, and uh, boy, there's a lot to watch out for here, and uh, you know, with the FCC these days, mm, <laughs> they're not what they used to be, that's for sure. They're not doing their job as much as I think they should be. Thanks so much for being with us. Look forward to speaking with you again, John Kaczynski. Thank you very much, Britt. And let your Congress people know as well if you're uh, writing the FCC or writing a local television Ah. station. Carbon them on those things for public file because uh, that gets noticed.
It does. And it does matter to members of Congress. It absolutely does. They still need our support and our votes, no matter how much money they get. Thank you again. Thank you, Bert. It's called Television Man by Talking Heads. Stay with us. We'll be right back. right now is Amanda Marcotte, who is a freelance journalist uh, from Texas, but now living in the great town of Brooklyn, New York. She focuses on feminism, national politics, and pop culture with the order shifting, depending on her mood and the state of the nation. Well, Amanda, thanks very much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Well, what brings us here together today is that you wrote about a, a prom a homeschool prom in which a girl, Claire Ettinger, was the focus of chaperones, male chaperones in particular, uh, even though her dress was entirely within code and local regulations. Apparently, some of the fathers chaperoning the event had complained about her. They reportedly said that her dancing was too provocative and that she was going to, quote, cause the young men at the prom to think impure thoughts. Sorry for laughing. She ended up uh, being kicked out because all these fundamentalist Christian dads couldn't stop leering at the teenager. And, of course, they blamed her for it. 
is it, it reminds me of blaming the victims for being raped for being attractive am, am i out of line here no i mean obviously there's a big difference in degree but it's the same kind of thing of like assuming that women's self-presentation or women's clothing choices or women's behavior somehow just automatically controls what men do. And, you know, it's just about letting men off the hook for controlling their own behavior. And, and Amanda, do you, the event was at a prom for, for homeschooled kids. Do you think such blaming of the girls for being oh, sexually attractive that is that blaming more prevalent among fundamentalists? Have you any research or sense on that? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, that's not even like that's something I think fundamentalist Christians in a lot of cases would actually all agree with. This isn't even something that there's a point of dispute. Um, you know, in the secular world, I think there's a lot of debate over these sorts of things, whereas in fundamentalist Christianity, at least in the sort of far-right homeschooling Christian patriarchy circles that that these, most of these kids kind of move in, um, it's explicitly um, taught that women have a responsibility not to, quote-unquote, cause men to stumble. That's actually like a very common phrase in fundamentalist Christianity, um, and they have all these lists and... Um, Printouts and all these other things explaining how women are supposed to dress and behave themselves to not cause men to, and, and the word is always stumble. So it's considered sinful to cause another to sin. And the responsibility is basically solely put on, on women, even while men maybe like try to supposedly control themselves. It, Men are told they're supposed to control themselves, but realistically, as this situation showed, it just becomes a a matter of everybody just obsessing over every inch of a woman's body to make sure that it's being covered properly. (laughs) It's it's amusing, but it's very disturbing. And so so this girl had to leave the dance. I wonder how boys were reacting. Was the reaction? Uh, you know, that w- were they misbehaving? Were they stumbling? That 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 word stumbling. I, I, how would you define that? What do they mean by stumbling? That you know, if that that men, or at least you know, white fundamentalist Christian men would be on the straight and narrow path without uh, if they weren't attracted to women. That's a little odd. That's exactly it. With their they would say with their walk with God. Sin is a stumble, right? Oh, right, right. If if you have sinful thoughts about wanting to have sex with a woman, then that is a stumble. Um, Yeah, yeah, it's brutal. (laughs) So that's that's the women's fault. I see. I I find it uh, more than a bit ironic that we in America, pretty much everybody in America, when they look at the you know, conservative Muslims in the Islamic world who force women to cover up from head to toe. They wear the chadors, they wear the, the head scarves. You can't see anything, barely even the eyes, in some cases not the eyes. I, I, I wonder if that's something similar. Is it to protect women from men who can't help themselves? Do you see any 
uh, similarity or, or, you know, oddity that here we are disgusted with, with those awful conservative Muslims and the fundamentalist Christians here at home. Is, is there something on a similar track there? Oh, they're exactly the same. There's no difference. And, and that same kind of it, that mentality where if, if women give in to a certain amount of the logic, then, um, you know, the fundamentalist men just keep pressing the point. Like, you see that in both cultures. I would say, you know, it's a, the book Persepolis has this, uh, the comic book about growing up in fundamentalist Iran has this really great scene where the main character is following the street dress code. She has no hair peeking out. She's got the, the head covering and everything on. And some men, some poli- Iranian police officers um, single her out and say, you're wiggling your, your ass too much underneath your, your clothes when you walk. Ah, uh, I see. And she just loses her temper and is like, just stop staring at my house. <laughs> like, the fact that, I mean, regardless of where you are in the world, you know, once the logic that women are there to control, like women are obliged to control men's choices, feelings, or behavior comes into play, wow. then there's no limit to what will be asked of women. I mean, because the, the very premise is ridiculous. The only person who can control you is you, you know? And I'm not saying that men shouldn't think sexual thoughts, so, I, right. you know, you should just kind of, you know, it, it's not that hard, which was a point I made in the post, which is like, in the sort of secular urban world that is always being bashed by the conservative press, men... Ten, most men tend to just go along in life. They see women wearing all variety of clothing, including very little, and they manage to not sexually harass them, wear at them, or be terrible about it. They, they, they can, you know, they can have their thoughts and think what they want without having to make it a woman's responsibility to deal with them. You know, boy, they're <laughs> that hard. It, it seems like these, a lot of these fundamentalist Christian white men. Uh, want to have and are determined to have power and control over women, and yet the way you described it, boy, they're giving women a lot of power. The men are helpless to <laughs> this stuff. I mean, that that's really kind of strange, I think. And there's this idea, and well, with most secular people anyway, that you know the thing about no means no, you know, and that that. There's no justification for violence against women. And let's face it, uh, rape is a violent act. It's not a sexual act. It's a violent act that uh, it's up to men to control it, that if a woman, no matter what she wears, no matter how alluring, sexually attractive it is, if she doesn't want to have sex with this guy, end of story. Is, Is this something that fundamentalist Christian men can't deal with, do you think? What What have you found on that? You know, unfortunately, you're right that, like, it, it does sort of carry over. While, obviously, there's this official condemnation of sexual assault in fundamentalist Christian circles, there has been a lot of stories coming out recently that sexual abuse is rampant in the homeschooling and Christian school environment, in no small part because when young women report being raped, they're often immediately subject to the the intense questioning of what did you do to cause him to 
stumble, you know, and and shaming and being treated like they have failed some way or they're impure. And it's particular. I, I recommend going to the New Republic and reading a piece about Patrick Henry College, where it, it's particularly disturbing because it shows how that logic plays out the same no matter what. You know, it's a very, very conservative Christian school. None of the young women that were sexually assaulted that were interviewed had been drinking or any of the other excuses the secular world comes up with to to minimize rape. And yet they were subject to the same kind of treatment. And I, I think it's important, therefore, to realize that you know, it isn't ever about what a woman does. It's, you know, if you are rude or assaultive towards her, that is on you, you know? And I, and just, you know, getting, like, not, you know, the rape thing is, like, I think a little bit more in your face, but, like, the, you know, the leering and the sexual harassment thing, I think a lot of people feel that's a little bit more excusable to do if a woman's dressed a certain way, but it... It's still not. It's still terrible, and it's still rude. I mean, didn't I? All I can think is, didn't your mama like teach you not to stare at people? You know. <laughs> <laughs> and especially uh, thinking about this this uh, dance, this homeschool dance. Here, I can just picture it. The the teenagers' fathers up in the balcony. Uh, one, you can really picture leering at the teenage girls. Teenage girls can't help it if they're. Teenage girls, you know, <laughs> and, yeah. and, and men find it attractive. We're talking this half hour with Amanda Marcotte about uh, fundamentalist Christian homeschool treatment of girls and the roles that they have to play and taking away power from men. Should Do you think, Amanda, that this is a message to women in conservative communities that they should expect to feel unsafe? in sexy clothes? Yes. And then that is, uh, I mean, it's clear that that is the intention is, is to make them, at least make them feel insecure and paranoid all the time. Ah. And it's one of those things that, you know, a lot of experts I've talked to in this sort of, who study this sort of thing say like, particularly in American Christian fundamentalist culture, girls are given a, a, a dual message of, like, they are supposed to be attractive and be sexy, but they're also supposed to always be monitoring this invisible and ever-changing line. And I, you know, of where they've crossed over and now they deserve to be treated poorly. And it's impossible to know where that line is because the line is always changing. And I thought that this story was a really good example because the girl that had laid out a dress code... The girl made sure her dress fit the dress code, and yet she still got harassed because it, it, you know, because the rules were never really the rules. The whole point of the rules was to always keep you insecure, you know. And I, but if she had shown up at the dance, I, I can guarantee you right now, if she'd shown up at the dance just wearing a potato sack, she would have gotten a different like kind of abuse, and then told that. You know, she needs to be more mindful about being attractive to men. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things that you often read a lot of Christians. The same Christian fundamentalist sources that scold women for being immodest will turn around and tell women that they need to be pretty and pleasing to the eyes so that they can attract a husband. And it's basically set up to be a game you cannot win. And, yeah. Absolutely amazing. 
and I I have found Amanda Marcotte that a lot of the uh, the gay bashers, the guys who get incensed about gay men being in their midst, and they they actually you know bash and and beat up and even sometimes kill uh, gay men. It's because the bashers are kind of insecure themselves about their own sexuality and uh, are, are you know they wonder if deep down inside if they're attracted to these attractive men uh and i wonder if there's something similar here with do do you find it socially conservative men tend to be more insecure and ashamed about their own sexuality is this part of the problem you know, I have to assume that that's true. I mean, obviously, by making it all about the women and what the women do, these men have created a wall of silence around their own thoughts and feelings and desires, and that obviously starts to it starts to make is after a while you start to think that's the point. You know, by putting all the emphasis on women, they can avoid actually talking about their own feelings and thoughts beyond just simply like posing like. Yeah, I'm a man. I like Playboy. I like to look at women. Yeah. And, and then immediately turning around and again making that women's fault as opposed to either, you know, uh, just a, a, it's kind of natural for men to look at women, but also B, like, it's your job to keep it in control, you know? Uh, it seems so common sense. But then again, uh, oftentimes common sense doesn't rule the day. Now, Amanda Marcotte, social conservatives insist they are trying to desexualize our world they're concerned that you know women out there in the secular world are being too sexual and that you know it's sinful they're leading men astray they're saying they're trying to desexualize our world in what ways might that backfire do you think well i think it was really obvious in the situation a 17 year old girl goes to a prom wearing a fairly Normal, not at all like outlandish dress, you know. It covered everything normally. It was, uh, I would say, by modern standards, a fairly modest cocktail dress. And yet these middle-aged men just, they, they see sex just oozing out of every corner. They can't, they act like they can't control themselves. As if this is like the most, like, the, the, the atmosphere at that prom sounds like it got really sexually, like, charged really fast and then in the most gross, perverted way as opposed to a fun, flirty way, which is what kids are sh- should be allowed. And all I could think to myself was reading this was, you know, I live in New York City, like the hotbed of liberal, secular, oversexed, you know, you can walk around half naked here and no one could, no one will look at you twice. Right. That's basically what I realized. is like, you get on the subway here and a woman could get on wearing, like, you know, a bikini. Sure. And, like, nobody would, like, almost no one would leer at her or harass her. Certainly not all the men in the room, which is what it sounded like at this prom, that all the, the adult men were so beside themselves to see a girl in a normal cocktail dress that they just, they lost it. And I'm just, you know, in the secular, liberal mecca of New York City, you know, women can walk around looking barely wearing any clothes, and men, by and large, will not behave that way. I mean, a few will, always, but most won't. Yeah. Most stay in their lane. (laughs) And stay in their lane, that's... 
I wish more drivers would do that. And, you know, they're trying to desexualize the world. And guess what? You know, sex has always been here, probably always will be. And if people are interested in, uh, you know, in, uh, in having a future population, you know, and it's kind of necessary. And it seems like it's, it's kind of backfiring that they want to desexualize it in a way they, they're kind of increasing the focus on sex. It's, it's really bizarre. And I get the impression that in social conservative areas of America, women are expected to be dominated and controlled by men. Is this clamp down on women looking attractive related to that? You know, if women look attractive, they have to be controlled. Is, is there some kind of connection between the the incessant desire to dominate and control women and clamping down on women being attractive related to that white male domination and control? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it certainly, in fact, it's it's the primary way, I think, in a lot of ways that control over women is exerted, just constantly making and changing and making them dance and change all, Uh all these rules of, like, you have to wear this and you can't wear that and you must look this way but not too much that way and... You know, it's basically about making women just feel like they, like, if you're just doing that dance and just playing that game all the time, you know what you never get to do as a woman is think, you know what, I want to wear something because I want to wear it, or, you know, I want to look this way because that's what makes me happy. You know, that's not even on the table for women in these cultures. Mm. Like, because everything's about being attractive but not to, being sexy but not to, and then, of course, you know, always having to, to change yourself for other people's opinions. And it's, it's, really, it's really sad if you think about it. Yeah, it really is uh, in- incredibly uh, repressive. And, they, you know, these, a lot of these social conservatives uh, often point to social liberals who are fine with, uh, you know, gay marriage and things like that, they point to social liberals for sexual licentiousness. What's your response to that? Here's the thing. Sex is normal and healthy and a normal part of human life, just like food or sleep or anything. And if you think about, and if you accept it and embrace it for what it is, it actually becomes easier not to let it dominate your life. Um, uh. so if you, if you've ever been on a diet and calorie restricted, what happens to you? All you think about is food. <laughs> all you think about is food. You can't think about anything but food. You just spend all your time thinking, I am so hungry. If you can't sleep, if you have to get up at 4 a.m. to catch a flight and then you're on a plane for 24 hours because of delays and stuff, all you can think about is sleep. Of course, sex is the same. If you don't, if you deny yourself a healthy, normal sexuality, then you're going to become weird, obsessive, and perverse. If you allow yourself to have a, a, a normal, healthy sexual life, it, it is contained and it is good. It's a part of your life as it should be. I mean, nobody's anti-sex here. Like, I guess that's why they think we're over-sexed or because we're not against it. But, I mean, what happens is you see people have a handle on it they can they can go about their daily business without making everything about sex Hmm. and you know i I get accused all the time of being some kind of like horrible flatter and slut and it's like you know what 
I'd probably get through a lot more of my day without making it about sex than most of the people who make that accusation at me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> saying that being, I'm not saying you shouldn't be sexual. Right. You should be. That's the point. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a it's part of life. You're right, and I can think of so many examples who you know people they're doing without something, and here sex, repress sex, repress sex, repress sex. They're thinking about sex all the time. It's a little weird, and let's hope we can learn from this from this particular lesson with this this girl, this 17 year old girl, and. Uh, if people, you, interesting observations, it always has. You, you've been on the show before, Amanda, and hopefully you'll be on again. If people are interested in following uh, your uh, journalism work, some website to which you can point them. Um, you know, I think the easiest way to follow everything I do, because I write for a lot of places, is to follow me on Twitter, at Amanda Marcotte, just my name. And I also write for Slate's XX Factor and Law Stories Pentagon on a daily basis. Well, thank you so much. Very, very interesting. It's uh, what we talked about money and then sex. Hey, what could be more fun? Thanks so much for being with us, Amanda. Thank you. Bye. Larry Coriel with a song called Sex. 